Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, this is Paul Axton, and I'm here with uh, Hayden Hagerman. And today, Hayden and I are discussing Augustine and Wittgenstein and uh, laying out then a, an understanding of an approach to theology that takes into account both Augustine, a part of Augustine, but also a, a departure and critique that we find in, in Wittgenstein. And it is a continuing conversation. We've, uh, this is part two, then, of this uh, conversation. And uh, Hayden is an, uh, has studied with uh, Stanley Horowitz, with uh, Paul Griffiths, and this has been kind of your focus. And I guess that part of this you've also, uh, would you put Karl Barth into the, the kind of uh, a Wittgensteinian sort of approach that we're taking here? There, there is a vein in which you can read him like that. Now, one, one thing that's fascinating is Wittgenstein makes a remark about Karl Barth in a little book, Culture and Value. And and Wittgenstein makes the remark that Karl Barth just gesticulates with words. Uh, now that would uh, that would probably make some of the post liberals pause. But there's a way of reading Karl Barth in a Wittgensteinian sense uh, and be a bit more charitable to him than say Wittgenstein is. I can't remember which one of Wittgenstein's students it was, but uh, maybe you remember that was became, I think, or was studying for the priesthood and uh, was reading Bart to him over the phone. Have you heard the story? I have. Yeah, you, you should rehearse it. And he's reading it, and and uh, Wittgenstein said, "Oh, just stop, just stop right there. The man is so arrogant <laughs> that you know it's it's uh, repulsive." Yeah. Now we we might. You know, others have said, yes, but that's not the end of the story, that, in fact, Wittgenstein later came back to Bart and, right. and seemed to have developed a, at least a better appreciation. I don't know how deep his appreciation was. And, of course, that, I think, is a part of the story as, as we lay all this out, that Wittgenstein himself, as he's coming to I think a profound recognition of the nature of truth is is on his own sort of spiritual journey. That that's certainly the way that you know James McClendon lays it out. And since McClendon wrote his trilogy, the diaries that uh, of Wittgenstein uh, have also then laid out. I encountered in Japan, strangely enough, through a Japanese translator of the diaries, in which Wittgenstein uh, uh, certainly was never any sort of full-blown Christian, to say the least, but he was certainly on a path very similar to Tolstoy from, you know, uh, World War One. that he's reading Tolstoy. And I, I just, and this was the, the uh, translator, the Japanese man's point, that you right. really can't understand Wittgenstein apart from the the uh, spiritual journey or his own individual journey that he's he's really describing then a, a kind of theological understanding and this was the way he put it that you know the tractatus the philosophical investigations that if we would characterize these in regard to 
philosophy as we have it, that here is philosophy not in an arrogant, you know, prideful sort of way, but here is a humble approach. And of course, the way that ties into Wittgenstein's life is here is a man who many just was insufferably arrogant and prideful, and he himself then was on a journey in which he's trying to achieve uh, a level of humility. Yeah, so there's a, a couple points to that. Part of his biography, I think you narrated very well, that it was a journey for him uh, spiritually to the point where, as you mentioned, in World War One, he used to carry around Tolstoy's uh, The Kingdom of God is Within You, and he was openly a, a Christian. He was came from a Catholic family and had Jewish heritage. And in culture and value, and I've done some work elsewhere on this. Well, there he, he, he speaks about wrestling with being a Jew or having Jewish heritage. And some of the remarks that he makes are, uh, to say the least, fascinating. Um, but he talks there about why he can't be a Christian. And this directly connects with most of his work in the investigations about the sort of person who is a Christian um, isn't too soft and isn't too hard. Uh, he, he gives the example of being stamped by Christianity. If you're too st- too soft, the stamp you know won't stick. But if you're too hard, uh, the stamp will kind of be fragmented and broken. And so he talks about becoming a Christian as a sort of, I think, in the Aristotelian mode, a training of the affections, that there's some, there's some work that has to be done. It's not that you're, that you're just presented with the gospel apart from who you've been and uh, who you are. But leading up to those moments of encountering the gospel, you're already a type of person possible of receiving uh, the gospel. And of course, we can think here of the parable of the sower. And I think that directly fits in with Wittgenstein's own comments about uh, re- receiving the message of Christianity. You mentioned James McClendon. And one of the things that I've been thinking about and that we thought about when I was in that Harawas, uh, Paul Griffiths uh, course on Wittgenstein, whether it mattered whether Wittgenstein was a Christian. McClendon wants to say that it did. Harawas and Griffiths wanted to say that it didn't really, because there is in Wittgenstein enough there, enough fodder for thought and enough uh, Christian-like stuff that we can just happily take up. And I, that seemed to be a comment that you were making was that there's a there's approach that, that Wittgenstein's approach is is deeply Christian um, in the sense of of its humility, of uh, its therapeutic elements of its calling us back to what kind of creatures that we are, namely human, and that we are creatures. You know, so it's it's something I think that is worth thinking about, whether it matters, whether he was explicitly Christian. Now, of course, he died with receiving the last rite. So on the Catholic viewpoint, you know, he, he, he died as a Christian. But, but it's still worth thinking about. The issue is not whether he was an Orthodox Christian, which I don't think he ever was, but maybe expanding what, you know, the journey toward what it might mean to be a Christian, that certainly he never joined a church, he never identified with a any kind of recognizable body of Christians, but thought of this uh, as a kind of personal journey. I think that what we've, what you've described then is that 
the the whole notion of a kind of Christianity as something that just happens to somebody and then it's finished, rather than a path or a way that people follow. That's the that's the significant theological shift that's going to come with people like Hauerwas, with people like McClendon. I think that's flowing out of, of post liberalism. That is very Wittgensteinian. In other words, instead of the Lutheran Calvinist mm. kind of idea, well, now I've been converted, now I've been saved. Rather, what we're seeing is, well, no, actually, Christianity is a path. It's a way. It is the way that one follows. And it may be that uh, Wittgenstein then is in the early stages, you know, maybe uh, of of that path on a journey toward truth. That in his, and this is the significance of the diaries. He certainly was struggling mm-hmm. with what he believed and didn't believe. Mm-hmm. That he was thought of what he was doing as praying. He thought of his ability, you know, to give away his wealth. Or even at one point in the autobiography, he says, you know, what can I give up? What can I sacrifice? Could I throw the, my work here? I think he was talking about the philosophical investigations. Am I willing to just cast that into the fire? Am I willing to give up everything? Uh, he's doing all of this in a kind of notion, a Tolstoyan notion of following Christ, I think. And then he's also struggling, of course, as Tolstoy himself did with the miraculous. Tolstoy is, for all of our, all the deep appreciation one might have of Tolstoy, in the end, he is very modernist. You know, he, he's rejecting miracles. He's probably, you know, it's whatever the resurrection is, it's not significant for Tolstoy. And Wittgenstein himself then, the big issue that he keeps wrestling with is, can he believe in the resurrection? And at one point in the autobi- in the diaries, he, he, he realizes he believes that he, he, and whether that's significant or not, mm. the point is that he, he does not see his intellectual journey as something separate from who he is as a human being. And all of this is encompassed in his notion of being a follower of Christ on the way is the language that he would use. Well, he, he, he says something in Culture and Value that directly connects to this. He says the way to solve the problem you see in life is to live in a way that will make what is problematic disappear. And then he says of Christianity, if Christianity is the truth, then all the philosophy that is written about it is false. That gets it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So uh for for listeners uh that are interested in this subject, uh certainly consult the diaries that Paul was here mentioning, but uh look at culture and value and look at his lectures and conversations um on aesthetics, uh psychology and religious belief. And I think what you'll find there is is, is fascinating and we're thinking about I've kind of I've gotten us off track here that partly the the project we're doing though is to tie what Wittgenstein is doing uh, in his into his critique of uh, Augustine in their pic, depiction of language and part of your point is that we can take mm-hmm. the you know the introduction to the philosophical investigations 
and just picture what he's wanting to do as a complete departure from and critique of Augustine. But your point is, well, that's that's an oversimplification, that Wittgenstein has enough appreciation of Augustine to recognize that it's not simply a critique. Run down for us, then, how the two might, in fact, converge, or how we might complicate uh, a simple con- you know, picture of them as contradicting one another. Well, I, I read in the, lo- the last podcast from uh, a book called Teaching Christianity on De Doctrina Christiana in Latin, um, where Augustine talks about language and, and sets it within what Wittgenstein might call agreements and judgments. That, that is to say that what we say about a thing varies from context to context on the basis of how we use that word. So, for instance, if I'm going to uh, talk about the bark of a dog, I'm, I'm talking about something that's peculiar to a dog, but if I talk about the bark of a tree, you know, etc. Um, so he's, I think, in deep agreement there, at least in, in that portion with Wittgenstein, that what we, what we say is, intelli- is intelligible within a context of use. In addition to that, um, in some ways, Augustine is very much like Wittgenstein in his approach, in this case, his approach to theology. That is, if we want to know who uh, God is, the way to, to, to arrive at a, at, at a deeper knowledge of who God is is not in any abstract sense, but it's in the words that we say. Um, I mean, you can read his, his great, the Trinity on this, that if we want to say that God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and Holy Spirit, then even the way that we talk about the Lord being Trinity, it's going to go something like this. Trinity, the Lord is, not the Lord is Trinity. If we, if we put it in that second way, we're tempted to think that, that the Lord is, is Trinity and something else. But if we begin with Trinity, the Lord is, that's, that's simply who the Lord is. I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing to add on to that. It's not that the Lord is Trinity and a host of other things. It's no Trinity. The Lord is. And I also think there's there's resources in Augustine too where it matters how we name mm-hmm. God. So in most conversation uh, where I'm I'm being more thoughtful, which is not in, in very many uh, conversations, by the way, but I'll refer to God not as God, but as the Lord kind of the, the all caps Lord that you find in uh, the Old Testament, you know, uh, which is, uh, you know, translating the Tetragrammaton. Um, because you can read Exodus 3.14 precisely in this way, that this is the name that the Lord gives himself or or gives his people to use. And God, for us, we're tempted to think that the Lord is a God like other gods. Um, we're tempted to think that God is a proper name, that God is a kind term like God or gods, but the Lord isn't one of those things. The Lord isn't Zeus. The Lord isn't Athena. The Lord isn't Superman, right? Um, and I th- we find those resources in Augustine. And that's a, d- 
a deeply Wittgensteinian mm. move, I think. If you're going to get to the essence of God, then know that it's going to be expressed in your grammar and what you say about God. Uh, so Let me yeah. see if I can restate what you said, that God is not a noun in the the uh, crude sense that we might have that a thing or an object, but by just stating it the way that you, the idea that beginning with Trinity, what you're beginning with is a dynamic person, and that if this person then is the essence, again, maybe that's the bad word, but but truth, in other words, tr we're characterizing the nature of truth, the nature of ultimate reality, that our tendency is to reduce things to nouns, to objects, to things. That's right. That's and right. that in Augustine himself then, though he may have, in some places, an inadequate view of language, uh, that he escapes that in other places in in his very depiction of God. Yes, uh, that's exactly right. And I think the place that you would go for this is someplace like Exodus 3.14, where uh, as, as a sort of uh, a source for speaking about this way. Because when you speak about the Holy Spirit in, in Jesus, if we're s sticking with Scripture, Scripture in the New Testament ref refor refers to Jesus as the Lord in the same way that God is referred to as the Lord in the Old Testament, and the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Lord as well. So it it matters how we how we speak how we speak about God um, and what we even call Him. Augustine would like to say that would have deep resonances with Wittgenstein's whole approach to philosophy. Let me let me draw out a, a possible conclusion from what you've said, and that is that within Augustine. There is, and because he is such a huge figure, and people are going to continually, you know, this is Anselm is going to refer to himself as a little Augustine, that in, in some way that he is going to become the figure, of, uh, uh, the, a reference point for people. And there is the possibility then of uh, a tradition flowing out of Augustine that is going to be inadequate in the same ways that Augustine is inadequate in certain places. And it's going to be inadequate because it focuses on a part of Augustine without taking the fullness of who he is into account. On the other hand, one can't just simplistically wipe out and say, well, everybody got this wrong, because, well, no, it's more complicated than that, that uh, Augustine himself exceeds Augustine, you know, that Augustine is better than Augustine in certain places. Right. And so there may be a, a, a stream of thought that comes out of Augustine that gets it precisely wrong. Mm -hmm. And there may be other areas that then are taking the better half of Augustine and getting it right. That's right. So an, another place that Augustine would get it right, I think, is in a little book that he wrote early on. Uh, it's a dialogue, and it's written uh, dialectically. So the positions that you think Augustine actually has, he doesn't really in the end. But for all of its troubles, and I've written about those elsewhere, he gets Wittgenstein's point about understanding right, which is that there has to be some sort of training and habituation. There's nothing that can guarantee your understanding a rule apart from the fact that 
you just go on. Now, Augustine's going to root that in something different than I think uh, Wittgenstein will. But the point is well t- taken. It's like if you're given some somebody, say you're teaching uh, math, and you give them a proof for how to do the math. Let's say you're teaching a child. Okay, they can know that the proof works to give them the answer that you want, but they don't know how it hangs together. In other words, they don't know how to go on. Or let's say that you give them the proof, and because they don't know how it hangs together, they don't know how to go on. Wittgenstein's going to say that's going to happen. And at that point, your explanations of how to get them to go on is going to fail because nothing's going to guarantee them to go on other than the fact that they're just going to do it. And Augustine's going to say something very similar in uh, The Teacher. There's there's nothing that guarantees you going on other than what he's going to say, God teaches you. You know, that's a curious move, I think. There is... There's no um, absolute guarantee that you're going to understand. You can try and and point uh, somebody to an elephant and say, that's an elephant. And there's no guaranteeing that they're going to know that they should look over there at an elephant because they might take that pointing gesture some other way um, because ostensive definitions can be variously interpreted. So they might maybe looking at your shoulder and thinking that's what you call an elephant. So there's there's no absolute guarantee of moving somebody onward other than the fact that they're just going to show that they go on and that they understand. And Wittgenstein's point about language is it's precisely like this. There is no ground to language other than the way that we use it. That's going to be deeply distressing for a lot of us, but in fact, that's the way that it is. There, there's no hidden ground. There's, there's no essence to the thing apart from the use. Let me draw out a theological point from that and see if you agree with it. We can read Scripture then in a bad Augustinian sense, that in some way we arrive at the truth and we get it and we own it, that it's an essence that we obtain. And I think that there is a whole theological tradition that is built upon that, that Becoming a Christian is an event that one does, and it's kind of finished. And what you're describing then, well, no, actually, as with language, so with truth, the point is not to obtain a doctrine, obtain you know something as if you own it, but it is to go on in the way that Christ goes on. It is to go on in the way uh, that the disciples, the, the apostles go on, that the point is to be able to follow and f- follow the rules here, not in a legalistic sense, but in the sense of a game, in the sense of a form of life, that we know how to travel this path as a discipline because we now understand how the words of Christ, how who Christ is, applies in the context in which we're in. So the point of Christianity, what you've described is a very different, if we apply it theologically, it's a very different point to reading Scripture. Why do we read the Bible? Do we read it to obtain the truth, you know, and close the book? Or do we read it to go on in the way that Christ went on, to continue on, you know, if we're thinking in the terms of the book of Acts, that this story continues in our own lives? And it is then a discipline. It is the point of it is to see did we really get it? 
And if we shut it and when, when it's over with reading, or if we're finished reading and we don't, we're not able to follow the rules in a Wittgensteinian sense, we've not come to the truth. If I can add two things to that point, um, here I would just quote Augustine um, in his reading of Isaiah 7. Um, and he's going to be reading it through a translation of the Septuagint, but the way that it's going to be read is, in order to understand, you must believe. It, that is, there's, there's no guarantee to, to an absolute understanding other than an acting out. And here, I think you, you get deep resonances with Kierkegaard and Wittgenstein, where it's like, when all of my justifications are exhaust, exhausted, I just act. I just move forward. People are, especially in the apologetic mode, um, always wanting to be quick to cite Pascal and Pascal's supposed wager, which is, you know, you should wager your life on Christianity being true, because what if it, it turns out to be true and then, you know, you, you get to go to heaven or something like that? Well, um, Pascal complicates that. <laughs> Because he's in a conversation with another individual, that that under, that that individual is pressing him on. But how do I know it? It's true. How do I, how do I know? How do how can I be certain? Or we might phrase it as I I'm struggling to have faith. How can I have faith? And Pascal's answer to him, which might be deeply distressing to most, is uh, just come to church. Come to church, and and that's. That's going to be the answer. That's the living out. That's what it is. If you if you want to know what this thing is, you've got to live it out. There is no there is no arriving at its truth apart from the living out. And so the practice of Christianity is its truth. I think that's right. Um, yeah, there's there's people who've who've said that Wittgenstein has a is a pragmatist in in that way. He has a pragmatic understanding of truth. And I think I, I find that deeply persuasive. And and maybe just as a, a kind of side or a footnote to all this, you know, <clears throat> this gets into the whole problem that we get with Luther's picture of works righteousness. And of course I, I think that's a misunderstanding that, that the whole that we can set that aside that uh, we're not talking about working your way to heaven, but that we've what in the process of doing all this, that what has been redefined then is what salvation itself means. That salvation is not something that happens to you in the future. It's not something that's happened to you in the past. It's this process of life. That life is itself salvific. That the moments of life are salvific that entering into this truth is salvific. And what is meant by salvation, then, is not simply you know going to heaven when you die, but it's a participation in the person and work of Christ, in the person of, you know, in, the, in a, a kind of Trinitarian love that we can experience. And there, then, is a redeeming of the time. There is the whole theological project, the whole meaning of of what it might mean to go to church or to be a Christian gets changed up in this understanding. That's right. And I mean, what you said is kind of the, the, the sacramental view of reality that say Catholics would hold to is that the sacraments model 
the the journey that we have at each point in time, whether it's the entrance the, or birth, baptism, is the joining to the, the person of Christ. Uh, the Eucharist is, is the nourishing, the spiritual food on the on the journey, uh, reconciliation, etc., like that. But you brought up Luther, and I think it's important here to note too that for most of church history, faith was understood not as McClendon will call an opinion that you say believe that God is real or something like that, or that you you simply believe that Jesus is Lord or something like that. But it's it's a habit, right? And and it's something that you grow in. It's a virtue that is exercised. Here we should stick with the New Testament too. That the word for faith is indistinguishable from faithfulness. So that faith is is something that is inherent to our living out a life in conformity to the person and work of Christ. It's not something that you just apprehend or believe to be true in the way that I believe that the sun is 91 billion miles away or whatever. It's that my life is modeled in a certain way in which I constantly have to exercise the virtue of faith where I live out that that I think Jesus is the Lord or that I take that to be true. It's not just an intellectual mm. assent. I'm curious that you've you've studied with Hauerwas that sort of in a post-liberal, but I'm wondering what the takeaway is from the Yale post-liberals. Is mm. this then, if you had to sum up what they are doing, is this the significance then of post-liberalism? So I would say... Yes, that. But post post liberalism has the vein where they're responding to and with Karl Barth's rejection and denouncement of liberal theology, Schleiermacher and and, and the rest, hence the name post liberal. But they're also trying to re narrate or reclaim Christianity before the modern, before Schleiermacher. Besides just returning to scripture, they're trying to return return to the sources of the patristic heritage of the schoolmen, scholastics, and Calvin and Luther in a certain way prior to being taken up and received by the later Reformed and um, Lutheran tradition. So it's it's certainly, yes, this recovery of Christianity as a living and a doing, or the words Jesus is Lord makes sense only within a living out in accordance with that with that truth. But it's also that there are resonances and resources in Christian history that can help us better understand what it means to live that out. What I would say in historical sense, would they're receiving from Karl Barth after Wittgenstein a, a certain way of conceiving Jesus as Lord. But they're also receiving the work of the Nouvelle the theologians like Henry de Lubac and Jean Danielou, who are returning to the patristic heritage of reading scripture. And and the picture is that if that Wittgenstein is in fact an avenue to that sort of recovery. Certainly, certainly. It's it's a rejection of of that noun-based view of of language, of the descriptivist uh, reference-based view of language that words just named things and that we can know those things independent of our words. Hayden, I think we've had a significant conversation. I'm thinking of all kinds of ramifications, but we should probably bring this to <laughs> But we've about run out of time here. And so this has been a great conversation. I sure appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. 
Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.